0: Maybe you have one under your sink in your kitchen, or it's in a sloppy pile in the backyard. If you are a composter, you probably have a good idea of the benefits of composting. Accumulating biomass, which is food and vegetable scraps from the kitchen, and letting them decompose into that nasty-smelling gray and brown liquid, can provide essential nutrients for your plants in your garden. Or maybe your city just collects the compost and does something with it after that. And if they're collecting the compost, maybe they can make that compost a little bit better or more effective. My name is Luis Colorotolo and I am a Ph.D. student at the University of Guelph trying to get a food science Ph.D. And I'm looking through my compost bin right now, and I see pistachio shells, chicken bones, and apparently my roommate thinks dental floss is compostable. When I'm not examining my week's worth of compost, I like to interview other graduate students in all different types of fields, find out what they know and why any of us should care about it. And this week we are talking with Tara Oliveri, who loves biomass, particularly burning biomass. She is going to tell us all about biochar, which is a processed and heightened form of compost or biomass. She'll compare it to charcoal and tell us why it is worth making and the potential future of biochar in general. So if you're eating a meal right now while listening to this, think about the fact that the food you are eating, it might be a potential nugget of biochar in the future. Also, while listening, remember that we're graduate students and we are still learning, which is why we don't know everything and why this show is called We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Tara, how are you doing today?
1: Good, how are you?
0: I am doing very good today. Could you walk us through your educational history?
1: Yes, so I did an undergraduate degree at the University of Guelph in biological science. Um, And my undergraduate thesis was kind of in the vein of educational psychology. So that was a lot of uh, what I like to put on my CV uh, as um, sophisticated statistical analysis. And then I continued my master's at the University of Guelph. Um, in uh, it's a master's of science in plant agriculture, and I'm a part of a lab group known as the Bioproducts Discovery and Development Center, or the BDDC. And we exist um, within the School of Engineering and within the Department of Plant Agriculture.
0: So, do you talk to plants about their feelings? Mm-hmm.
1: No, um, personally, if you don't mind me getting into it so quick, my project in particular is looking at um, an engineered material to be used as uh, a soil amendment for the purposes of growing soybeans, which I'm sure you know is uh, a cash crop where we are in Ontario, so it's quite important for many industries and for food, whereas a lot of my peers work uh, solely on biodegradable polymers or plastics and bio-based uh, polymers and plastics, which are the same thing. And um, we kind of all work together to look at different kinds of ways we can use agricultural waste to do so. So for example, what I use to amend and or add to my soil is something that is also used and added to different kinds of plastics.
0: Oh, very interesting. This is, you know, I think about this a lot and I think to myself too, we love turning garbage into new things.
1: I mean, hopefully, the the problem is we have to somehow, you know, we live in a capitalistic society, I'm not gonna get too into that, but we have to make these processes lucrative. Just like recycling is a business. If we don't purchase recycled items, They're not going to continue to recycle those items. So if we can provide a way to add value uh, to what a food producer might consider waste, well, it makes their life better. And it adds to the the idea of circular economy, which I could maybe explain
0: if you would like. Yeah, go for it. Circular economy. Let's hear it.
1: Sure. So circular economy is kind of a newer idea. It was defined by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and it's a model of producing goods and consuming goods. And it kind of focuses on recycling what we have, refurbishing what we have and finding ways to use things that we once considered just byproducts and kind of redefine them as co-products to be used in different ways.
0: And there is so much of that in so many industries, and I think definitely food and agriculture, they take up a lot.
1: I couldn't even give you a stat right now, but agriculture is one of the most, uh, it's, it's the one of the biggest uh, contenders when it comes to um, wastefulness, greenhouse gas production, like, you know all of it, right? You, microplastic production.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the avenues that's going in the future is just that that word that you hear so much of sustainable.
1: Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because there's no legal definition of sustainable terms like biodegradable. Well, the reality is biodegradable doesn't really mean anything because technically everything is biodegradable. Um, my contacts are biodegradable. Your glasses are biodegradable.
0: I'm biodegradable.
1: We are biodegradable, but that's different from something like the term compostable. The term compostable to make something a product that has that designated label, it has to meet certain uh, ISO or ASTM standards, and these are set out by ASTM is American, ISO is international, mostly used in Europe. We kind of use both. To be able to have that label on a product is more meaningful. But a lot of companies, brands, they will use terms like biodegradable to kind of greenwash and trick consumers. And I just kind of want to get that information out there because I think it's really important.
0: Oh, it is super important. And I got a whole bunch of these facts before this conversation. I didn't know it, but we worked in some very similar fields. This was not planned. Oh, no way. Yeah. Um, side note, I, I used to do uh, biodegradable food films.
1: Yeah. That is so interesting because one of the applications of a lot of the work we do in the lab is for um, food packaging purposes. Uh,
0: one thing that I I always think is interesting, this is one of my go-to party facts, and I have I have a list. I have a very long list of party facts, and a lot of my party facts have to do with recycling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really fun at parties. Obviously, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you look at the bottom of a plastic bottle or something that you see as recyclable, when you see that number there, it doesn't necessarily mean it's recyclable. That is actually just a categorization. Catarigaz- cat- Ooh, what is that? I word? you. Don't
1: Cate- worry.
0: <laughs> categorization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. That is just a categorization of the material that it is doesn't necessarily mean it is recyclable.
1: Yes, that's true. Um, And the thing that I think is also really frustrating is um, depending on what region you live in, something may or may not be recyclable depending on the system that's in place. And that kind of goes back to what I said earlier that recycling is a business. It's not just something nice the government does for us. So if they don't feel like your number six type plastic is worthwhile to process they're not going to process it and certain brands they try to combat this for example um lush they ask you to if they have a buyback kind of thing so if you return their packaging you can get something for free and they recycle it themselves because the reality is most places don't recycle the plastic that comes from those packages specifically so it is nice to see stuff like that but obviously we need a lot more so
0: yeah and uh, packages are really complex they rarely are just one single material all the way out Mm -hmm. um i think like a a great example is the uh a bottle of uh, a soft drink so a pop uh if you have this bottle you got the 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 bottle itself which is usually uh uh, oh what is it a polyethylene low density polyethylene uh or it's not hdp no no it doesn't matter uh so you have yeah or is it polypropylene a
1: bottle, I don't think so. No, polypropylene mm. would be for something like PP and mm. PS would be for something else. So, uh, elsewhere.
0: Either, either, so, anyways, you have the, the bottle of the pop, uh, which is a different material than the label that tells you what flavor it is, which mm-hmm. is a different material than the cap,
1: exactly. And I don't think a lot of people know that. Like, when you recycle, like, let's say, um, hopefully, where we're living, we're drinking tap water, but. If you are somebody that suffers from kidney stones and you need to drink bottled water, you can recycle the bottle. You can't recycle the label on the water bottle that has glue on it, and you can't recycle the cap.
0: Yeah. And, ready for a bonus, what about that? If you take off that bottle top, there's that little ring that stays on the bottle. What Mm -hmm. What a tricky little ring that is.
1: And. Oftentimes when these batches of like recycling come into a whatever processing center we have, oftentimes there's so much there that if they feel a certain box or a whole load, a few people's worth of recycling, if it's contaminated, most of it actually just ends up in the trash anyway. Greasy pizza boxes, all that kind of stuff. Like,
0: it's super expensive to sort recyclables. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's there's certainly a lot of holes in the system. And I think before we go deeper into the doom and gloom of the recycling system, do we have any light that we can shed on it?
1: Sure. So again, the model of circular economy can kind of help combat this because it takes energy and money and time, lots of investments in various forms to improve that system. But if there's a way that we can take things like agricultural residues and use them for a different purpose like food packaging or like what I use biochar we can help combat this issue a bit better.
0: All right so let's let's dig into the nitty-gritty let's hear more about this biochar.
1: Okay so the way that I can explain this most easily is biochar is kind of like charcoal but it's not. We create charcoal when we ignite um, biomass, which is just any material, your flowers, plants, trees, wood, stems, sawdust, when that's all considered biomass. When we ignite biomass in the presence of oxygen, we create a bunch of products. Some of them are greenhouse gases, and some of it is charcoal. But when we ignite those same types of biomass in the absence of oxygen, usually they do that in a the presence of an inert gas. So an inert gas is something that wouldn't react with any of the other gases around it. Typically, this is nitrogen. You get something called biochar.
0: Okay, so, like, if we're thinking about uh, all of that compost material that we get, that schlop that's in that bucket in your kitchen that goes out once a week, which, by the way, very generous program that the Guelph has for the composting. Big fan of that. All that schlop, they put it into this big schlop house, and then they light the schlop on fire.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So, Typically we'll have something a little more sophisticated. Yeah, so we'll have a a pyrolysis reactor that allows you to um, manipulate the environment. How much of this gas do you want present? What pressure, what temperature, what's the heating rate? How hot do you want it? Do you want it to have uh, multiple peaks of heating? And all of these things help manipulate the characteristics of your resultant product. This is also really important because the process of pyrolysis also produces other things. So biochar was once just considered a byproduct. It wasn't useful. Now we're redefining it as a co-product. Typically, the system of pyrolysis, this process, sorry, was meant to produce bioethanol, so biofuel. But we can manipulate the conditions of pyrolysis in order to favor either biochar or biofuel.
0: Oh, okay. So kind of changing the parameters, the heating cycle, the gas that's used, things like that, you can make a a different product.
1: Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting idea to have, perhaps that if there is a certain group working on producing biofuel, at the very least, maybe we can gather this biochar or vice versa, right? So Typically, people don't like to hear this. Um, I don't work in biofuels, but I I kind of think it's worth mentioning because it's kind of all connected, right? Everybody says, I I don't want to turn food into fuel. And I get it. But those are first generation biofuels and that doesn't exist anymore. This is the time where actually um, Ford, who started Ford Motor Company, this is kind of one of the first cases in the West where this was um, starting to be developed and they would use corn and soybeans because it produces a lot of oil. But the reality is we don't do that anymore. We use waste products. And I just wanna use that to remind people we are not burning food, we're burning wheat straw. I'm currently using coconut shell, uh, weeds, jute, hemp, all those waste products in order to create something that is actually valuable right. to add to the circular economy.
0: So not taking the food out of anyone's bellies. We are using the leftovers, the scraps, the stuff that nobody really wants. I mean, that's compost bins. It's not like we you know, we, we fill our compost bins in our kitchens filled with fresh food. We get rid of the scraps. And what are we going to do with those scraps? I'm not going to keep them. give them to you.
1: A lot of people want to continue to use it for compost, but I think it's important to also note it is better to use soil as a carbon sink because if we're going to let something degrade fully, yes, it's better than having something that doesn't break down, that isn't compostable, but you're still releasing greenhouse gases. So the act of farming, the act of growing and harvesting our winter wheat still is wasteful even when we use all sorts of sustainable activities surrounding it like don't monoculture and use buffers and less fertilizer but if we don't do something with that wheat straw that's left over you're just contributing to more greenhouse gases in our environment and in our atmosphere by going through the process of pyrolysis we're actually able to capture a lot of that carbon and other um, functional groups and that would contribute to different kinds of greenhouse gases We capture that in a solid form and we can just put it in our soil. And not only does it allow our soil to act as a carbon sink, but it benefits the growth of plants too. So,
0: Yeah. Could you do us a favor and explain what a carbon sink is?
1: If something is a sink, uh, I don't know if anyone's heard the term of like a sinking fund. So you're adding to something. So you're saving it. Just like in your sinking fund, you use that account to put money into. We want to use soil as a sinking fund for carbon. So it's a carbon sink
0: and why do we want to put carbon in the soil is the carbon not good anywhere else
1: because if we're going to if it's going to be converted into something like co2 that's in a gaseous form a lot of that i'm sure most of us have heard about the issues we have with the greenhouse effect and greenhouse gases right so we don't want to contribute to that we want to see how we can capture the carbon that we are producing if we cannot avoid producing it
0: so we put this carbon sink in the ground. Is this the equivalent of sweeping dirt under the rug?
1: No, and that's a really good point, right? Like we have, uh, we had an issue with smokestacks, and everyone thought it would be fine because they made it taller in Ontario, and then instead the pollution ended up moving to Quebec. We're not. This is not that situation. Like diamonds are carbon. Coal that we can mine is also a different form of carbon. When we're able to uh, transform different parts of like cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin, which are the substances in biomass. If we can conform that into solid carbon in the form of biochar, you're actually able to provide a lot of different kind of benefits to plants. So like I said earlier, when we're able to alter the characteristics of the resultant biochar, things like porosity can change. Porosity is important for plants because it might mean that maybe in a drought-stricken area, we'll have to, we'll be able to water those plants less because the pores, the macro pores, the micro pores, the big ones and the small ones allow the material to hold on to more water and release it at a slower rate. Those pores also help stop fertilizer leaching. So that's something we can use in the West too, right? We're not necessarily like the North of Africa would really benefit from a tool like this, right? They've been experiencing like the longest drought for years, it's not just something we would use to help remediate a situation. We can use less fertilizer here. Different functional groups, uh, so different compounds might exist on the top of biochar. This also could contribute and kind of work as a form of fertilizer, again, using less. So. All of these things can help contribute and benefit the growth of plants. It's not just a, where should we hide this kind of thing? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it sounds like this it has a lot of purposes, this biochar stuff. Yes,
1: and there it's kind of a hot topic right now, at least in my field, and people have a lot of opinions. Um, and even with my own research, it's kind of hard to try to convince people to try this, but it all comes down to what can we identify as markers for fit- fertility, for good soil that makes good plants. Um, and so like higher yields, for example, How, what kind of characteristics in biochar can we link to that? And that takes time to develop because it's different. Depends not only on the, all the conditions that I, I mentioned, there's also so many more I couldn't even get to, but also like the biomass that we're using. Is it wet biomass? Is it dry? Uh, Where is it from? What species of plant is it from? Like there's so many factors and there's actually like a lot of work that needs to be done in this field.
0: Help me understand, how is this biochar not compost? Is it just because you burned it in nitrogen?
1: Yes. So we're capturing it in a more solid form, right? Mm. So just like it takes, it's harder for um, a diamond to break apart. It's not so difficult for water to evaporate. Is this a. Does that kind of make sense in a way?
0: Would you say it's something like having a big, like a loofah sponge versus a real tight knit sort of sponge?
1: You put it perfectly. Yes. Steel wool versus a loofah, let's
0: say. Okay, so it's harder to take it apart, but it still possesses a lot of properties, if not some new properties. Yes. Giving it extra functionality.
1: Yes, that's a great way to put it.
0: I love this biochar stuff. Where do I get some? Well,
1: I think some more expensive, fancy greenhouses might sell it to you. Often, usually when you are buying it, you're basically buying charcoal, to be quite honest, um, which can still benefit your home gardens. So if anybody wants to go out and get some, like it will help your gardens. Um, But it's more about convincing big production companies to convert to this process. So instead of like, burning things in the presence of oxygen we need to set up pyrolysis reactors which are expensive right so back to that whole thing we got to make this lucrative for businesses so if there's a way or through research that we can optimize our settings to show these companies and our governmental bodies that it is worth it to invest in this then it will be more widely available
0: right so we need we're product pitching right now we're saying this basically this biochar is the hottest thing since uh, charcoal. I don't know. Don't. Sure. Perfect. <laughs> you know, like if you were to make an as-seen-on-TV commercial for biochar, could you?
1: All right. So, biochar. It's the next great thing. Better than charcoal. It's charcoal 2.0. You want it for your gardens? You got it. It's going to help you use less water, use less fertilizer. You're going to save money, and you're going to use your garden as a carbon sink. And you're saving the planet at the same time, so...
0: Wow, you just like tied like an ethical responsibility to that. What can I- this is way better than the slap chop or the sham wow. Oh. <laughs> Great, thanks. So, uh, now I'm picturing, you know, the black and white part before all the infomercials where, like, their lives are a disaster until they get the new product. I'm just thinking of, like, some someone, like, kneeling down at a garden and all their plants are dying, and they're like, why is life like
1: this? And then you just sprinkle a little... little biochar. Biochar little, on top,
0: but... A layer of biochar.
1: Two, take it to a slightly serious note. You did mention you know, there might be some cons. So I want to put some people's fears, uh, at bay. A true
0: scientist.
1: <laughs> Thank you. We always got to talk about it. I want to talk about my mistakes more than I want to talk about my successes. Cause I can write more to be quite honest. <laughs> I'm sure you feel the same. Oh boy. Yeah, I do. <laughs> there you go. So a lot of people feel that perhaps biochar might release uh, the process of pyrolysis. So the process of creating that biochar, they're worried about the potential greenhouse gases that are released. Some people use other forms of biomass. So I focus on using um, plant-based biomass, but biomass also includes things like cow manure, chicken feathers, left uh, bones, like all of these things can also be used. I just think it's important to note that, and again, maybe you're gonna have somebody on later that's gonna completely disagree with me. They have completely different research, but from what I know, using these types of biomass, so animal-based wastes, in the process of pyrolysis is what is going to end up releasing more harmful types of gases because there are still gases that get released during this process. And also that might add some functional groups that are very, very acidic or very, very basic um, that can actually harm the plant, the growth of our plants. So I think it's just something to keep in mind that we are trying to focus on plant-based plant biomass types to use in the process of pyrolysis.
0: And I imagine even within plants, there are some plants that are going to be producing less harmful stuff and some plants that are producing a lot of more harmful stuff relatively to each other.
1: Um, I mean, I, virtually, I want to say no, okay. because if, it's, if something is edible for us, more or less, it's not necessarily going to produce a product that would be harmful for the uptake of the plants that we're going to eat. This is not me saying you should eat charcoal or eat biochar, but having a certain degree of acidic functional groups, acidic little compounds on the top of our biochar benefits the growth of those plants, right? That's why we add fertilizer to our soil. We want different kinds of, we want Um, ammonia and you know nitrogen in the form of ammonia right so we don't eat that but we will put it in our soil to help our plants grow
0: yeah because the plants do a whole lot of things with that before it ever gets into your stomach
1: yes so that's not something to be worried about in in my opinion
0: Okay, so we have the differences between the animal biomass. We have the plant biomass. We have the pyrolysis in the inert gas, which is the nitrogen, or we have it in the non-inert gas or the reactive gas, which is the oxygen. And then we have some where we don't even burn it at all. Or, well, is compost ever burned? It can, so compost, and clarify for me. Compost is never burned. Charcoal is burned. And then... Yes. Okay, so, so we can say in general.
1: We do not compost typically. We let nature take its course and it breaks down into carbon, oxygen, water, and base elements. Charcoal, we burn in the presence of oxygen um, and it releases more um, greenhouse gases as compared to biochar uh, production. So we pyrolyze biomass to produce biochar. So we have less release of greenhouse gases, and we have more interesting co-products like biochar and bioethanol that we can use for a whole bunch of different things.
0: Okay, so we have these three, let's just call them major categories. I imagine there are some other small fringe things out there. There always are. We have these three main categories, and what you're doing right now in the lab is trying, and you're not a marketing consultant, but you're trying to kind of prove the worth.
1: Yes. I also think... It's important to note that because biochar is also used as um, an addition to a lot of plastics to help improve their biodegradability and their bio-based cost, it's important to provide evidence to suggest that not only when we put it in a landfill or in our compost one day, hopefully, not only is it not harmful to our earth, it's helpful. We have to help convince people that this is worth their investment of time and money.
0: And you do that mm-hmm. with numbers and experiments and everything like that.
1: Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, so how how do you quantify this? How do you put numbers behind? Yeah, it's good for us. I mean, like I believe you, mm-hmm. but like show me the proof.
1: Sure. For me specifically, I'm here to try to prove that there is a link between various biochar characteristics, what they their personality. I'll say and what we deem as markers for fertility in soybeans which like i said that's a cash crop where we are it's very important we also have to have people doing work to show us um, how to optimize biochar yields so we want to be able to convert as much of the mass of the biomass into biochar as possible so Based on what I've seen, some of it is kind of crazy to me. I've seen up to like 55%, 60% converted into biochar, which is quite a lot. I'll say that, especially compared to uh, charcoal production. But typically, I think the biochar that was produced for me, I think it's around like 15 to 20% uh, of the original starting mass was able to be converted. So we have to have uh, research that can help manipulate the, pro- uh, the conditions of paralysis to do so. We also need to have people working on how to pre-treat our biomass in different ways, maybe in an acid, maybe in a base, maybe with different kinds of substances, in order to try to accomplish the same thing. So it's, there's so many little things that we have to do to be able to provide to uh, industries and governmental bodies to, to show them that, Hey, like this is worth your while. Um, that, honestly, I think for people that are thinking about a master's or graduate school in general, I think the opportunity to start this is there.
0: Oh, really? Interesting. They, I mean, there's so many people that need to work on this. It's it's not just Tara working in a dark basement room, figuring out biochar all on her own.
1: No, not at all. I mean, I spend most of my time with my plants anyway, which is quite relaxing, I will say. So then,
0: are you a plant person?
1: <sighs> yes. I mean, I'm not going to start riddling Latin names for you that (laughs) I think would make me panic. But it's interesting to me because I feel like the Bioproducts Discovery and Development Center is such a multidisciplinary group. And I think it's interesting to see how in past history we had, if you were a scientist, you were everything, right? Galileo was a painter and an astronomer and a physicist and a physician and all that. And as society progresses, we kind of individualize in different fields. And I like to think that the study of environmental science and combating the effects of climate change has kind of come back to this idea of, you need to be a little bit of everything, right? Like you have to have, for example, in in my lab, um, I have experience in the automotive industry that links back to this. Um, My undergraduate degree was like very uh, plant science-based and statistical analysis. I did quite a lot of that. Um, The people around me Some of them are organic chemists, some of them are inorganic chemists, some of them are chemical engineers. So I think there is a place for any kind of scientist in this field, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's the definition of multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And that is just one of those hot words. If you are, just advice for anyone, if you're writing a grant, if you're applying for funding, you use the word multidisciplinary and you're halfway there. That's a good point. So, all right. We got this biochar. We decided that you have to work with a team full of incredibly talented people to even figure out this. Uh, What do you see as the next steps?
1: I think it would be helpful to have more evidence that biochar is not just not harmful, but it's helpful. And then being able to provide this literature to Different industries like the automotive industry, food packaging, um, even biomedical in order to convince them to invest in this process. That is the most important thing for me. Okay,
0: so then uh, prediction time, uh, which who knows, this episode might get dug up from some archives one day, um, and you'll be held against your word. But do you think that uh, in a certain amount of years, I will be able to go to a garden store and buy a big old bag of biochar?
1: Oh, for personal purposes? Yeah, for sure. Okay. 100%. I think it is more ambitious to hope that perhaps we can use this as a way to... Help struggling nations, like nations that are closer to the equator, that are experiencing climate change more rapidly and for longer than we have. I think it's kind of sad, but I don't think we're going to get there until those of us in North America start experiencing food insecurity as a result of climate change. Um, So, unfortunately, that is my prediction. I think we are going to have to start going hungry in Canada and the US. We're going to have to start experiencing drought, and then the need will be addressed. But until then, I'm I'm not quite sure how we can best convince these people to do that.
0: Yeah, and that is, it's really kind of a scary sort of situation to face. So yeah. people like you are kind of preventative measuring right now. You're saying like, well, it's not, you know, the most immediate issue right now, but you need to do your work in order for when it becomes an issue, we're at least one step ahead.
1: And it's, it's hard to do that, right? Like, the reason that so many people don't believe in climate change is because they don't experience it, and it's it's very hard to be able to convince people to, to pay attention and to think about these things, and I think that's why podcasts like yours are so important because scientists, I feel, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, we kind of gatekeep, I feel like. We like to make people feel like they don't understand what's happening, but we end up with a whole population of people that are not science literate enough to understand what they need to do in the next year or five years, so... Stuff like this is super important. We have to try to allow people to be accepted into this. You don't have to be a scientist to understand science.
0: You're, you're, I'm, I'm about to start crying. I, I oh really am. I'm gonna, I'm, <laughs> I think we have a major issue in the scientific community where we kind of uh, pride ourselves on a superiority of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that is to a detriment. Uh, we are not doing ourselves many favors at all by keeping our knowledge locked up.
1: I mean, even to give you another kind of off example, you know, OMAFRA works through the University of Guelph through Plant Ag, and they work very closely with uh, food producers nearby. And there is a big issue because they want to, it's not quite a neonicotinoid ban. It's quite a harmful um, insecticide and it is affecting our bee population. So there is this kind of, hope that we can phase out the use of neonicotinoids. The problem is we're not providing the food producers with any alternatives. We're not helping them fund any alternatives. We're just saying, hey, stop using them. You can use them under these certain guidelines. So if you count on the edge of your plot, this number of insects uh, that are eating your crops, you are allowed to use this much insecticide. We're not hiring people to go check that. We're not hiring people to speak with them about it to compile that data we're trusting people that are already not doing as well farmers do not it's not a very lucrative uh, profession and we're telling them you can't use this we're not going to help you figure it out and we're also not checking up on you so of course they're lying <laughs> i'm not going to blame these people for that It's it's just such a big overarching issue and we can't just like Let it slide by. We have to be a part of the process. You have to explain to people why that this is important.
0: We're going to also need incentives to apply these things. Exactly. So this is back circling back to that uh, multidisciplinary approach that we were talking about earlier. Even within the development of this biochar, you need a whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of different fields. But in order for us to get something done in agriculture, we need the team of farmers. We need scientists. We need uh, uh, large corporations that are producing items for them. We need the government and parliament to get together and say that this is what we're going to do and give us the money to do it.
1: I know. And it's it's hard like you know there's so many so many pressing issues that our government has to deal with especially now more than anything (laughs) but it's it's about trying to get people to spend the effort to and take the time to try to organize what we our funds and our time and what we have right now and I mean I think it's important because I work on it but yeah that's all I have to say on that I guess
0: right and these are these are our opinions on it Mm -hmm. Uh, So, okay, let's wrap things up. You are a biochar person uh, and you think it's super important. Why should everyone care?
1: Because this is a tool that we can use now across the globe and later where we live right here, right now, in order to reduce our waste, reduce the amount of emissions into our atmosphere, help produce higher yields of our food crops, and ultimately feed more people.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's that's so many of the world's problems right there that you are hecking uh, away at, I guess.
1: That's what I tell myself. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, right. One step at a time. One char by one char. Mm-hmm. All right. So thank you so much uh, for talking with us today. It was a real pleasure. Oh, thank
1: you. I had fun. It was really good. Thank you.
0: <laughs> now that you have listened to this episode with Tara Oliveri, you may realize that you have more potential than you thought. That is, of course, if you are biomass, which you technically are. But more in general, biomass can be turned into different products, like compost, charcoal, and biochar. Each of those products having unique properties that are good for environmental processes, like agriculture. As for me, Lewis, aka Future Biomass... In this moment, I realize that I have further potential to make this episode a little bit better by doing, as we always do, a little fact check at the end of the episode. The show is called We Know Some Stuff, so it's that time of the episode where we have to admit that we don't know all the stuff. Earlier in the episode, Tara was saying that the formation of biomass could be even more efficient than that of charcoal. However, if one was to dig through the internet a little bit to find those conversion rates, it might be a little bit more confusing than you might have hoped for. Some work that was produced by the people that Tara works with says that they can form biochar with a conversion rate from 10 to 20% using pyrolysis. But if they had a more slower working pyrolysis, the conversion could go anywhere from 25 to 35%. Whereas with charcoal production, you'll see a lot of sources online that say you can't expect anything more than a 20% conversion of biomass to charcoal. However, some will report that 33% is even reasonable. The different reportings from all of these studies highlight an incredibly important part about scientific communication. Not all of the processes of making the biomass into biochar or charcoal are the same. Different things like the temperature and acidity and input products are all different among these studies, so it's really quite difficult to match up exactly which process is better unless they are all done under the same operating conditions. However, Tara is willing to say that biochar production can be more efficient and the end product can be more useful. That ends our fact check for this episode, and hopefully you learned something important about biochar coming to a garden center near you. Thanks for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.